You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week we are in conversation with Stelio Stefanu, OBE. Uh, Now, Stelio is a businessman and philanthropist here in the UK um, who has a foundation and also set up an organisation called For Baby's Sake Trust, which we discussed quite a bit in our conversation. But as his background, he had a long career in the private sector, uh, including in oil and construction and public service industries, um, and that culminated in the sale of a business that he had built uh, called Accord PLC in 2008. And then he started uh, For Baby's Sake Trust as his philanthropic vehicle in 2008. Um, so we had a good wide-ranging conversation. It was really interesting for me to talk to somebody who is actually themselves a philanthropist about some of the issues around philanthropy that we like to discuss on the podcast. Um, we talked about what it was that had got Stelio involved in philanthropy in the first place what it was particularly that had led him to focus on the work that the Baby Sake Trust does focus on around domestic violence and particularly around uh, parents and, and support for their children. And um, We talked about what his business career had taught him about philanthropy and the extent to which a perspective from business is useful or not in terms of uh, addressing issues uh, around philanthropy or kind of engaging with charities. Um, we talked about whether there were risks to being known as a philanthropist and whether there were any concerns concerns on his part about kind of putting his head above the parapet and whether that had uh, affected the way in which he talks about his philanthropy. Uh, we talked about whether or not the word philanthropist is actually useful or whether philanthropists themselves like it, um, because this is something on which I've heard very varied opinions over the years. Uh, and we talked about how philanthropists learn from other philanthropists and indeed how they can use talking about their giving to encourage others to give and whether that is uh, something that they should sort of see as part of their role as well as the whatever it is that is the, the focus of their giving. Um, so without further ado, let's get get into the conversation. Uh, I will be back at the end for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. So I am here with Stelio Stefanu. Hi, Stelio. Hi there, Rodri. Great to have you on the podcast. And I should say, so Stelio is a philanthropist, uh, the chairman of the For Baby's Sake Trust and also the Stefanu Foundation, which I believe uh, operates in the UK and in Cyprus as well, um, or two separate foundations. Um, but rather than me sort of explaining for you these things, um, maybe the best place to start is if you could say a little bit in your own words about uh, what got you involved in philanthropy in the first place, what it was that sort of started you on that giving journey. Uh, thank you, Rodri. I think it was really round about the time I was thinking of selling the company. I'd always been interested in social issues and some of the work of the company uh, touched on on society and providing services uh, for people and communities. But uh, it was around that time that um, I started wondering about the issue, the problem of people who suffer abuse and can't tell anybody. So uh, babies uh, who, for obvious reasons, 
aren't able to describe, describe what's happened to them, and the elderly, who sometimes either aren't in a position to describe it or haven't got anybody to talk to, or might sometimes not even be believed because people might take it with a pinch of salt. And I thought, well, if someone is in that position, um, they are in a living hell in many ways, especially if it's severe abuse, uh, without any way of getting out of it. And um, it just sort of exercised my mind. And it was um, when I left, when I uh, sold the company, I decided, well, let's have a look at some of these issues. I didn't know exactly how we would go about it. I'd never run a, um, a charity before. So I had to start from scratch with a, with a clean slate. And um, it was around the time of Baby Peter. And it just occurred to me that um, you know, the, 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 these things don't just happen in isolation. It wasn't just a moment of madness that led to that baby's unfortunate death, tragic death. It, it was there's a there's there's something there that that seems to repeat itself, and we don't seem to want to address it. And of course, I think the government went into action at that time. Uh, the director of social services was sacked, and I don't know whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision. But what occurred to me is that sacking one person isn't going to save any babies. So started talking to people that I knew in local government, in social services, getting their views, you know, why do these things happen? And we started gradually getting some ideas together and um, gradually brought in people who were better at me at summarising these things and understanding them and doing research on them. And um, we decided we would try and dig deep and find out what is at the root cause of some of these problems within society. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. There's certainly a lot I want to pick up on about the work that the For Baby Sake Trust has been doing and the kind of particular approach that you've taken. You referenced a couple of times there the, the company that you'd sold up. I understand that's Accord, isn't it, that was the company that you, you were running? Yes. Um, and it's, I think that's, that's interesting because one of the things I wanted to touch on is the, um, the extent to which your experience or commercial experience informed your philanthropy. Do you, do you think that the, the things that you learned as a businessman have played a part in shaping your approach to, to philanthropy and, and in what ways? Well, it started, uh, I started with a blank sheet because my view is, well, um, OK, I've, I've had some experience in business over a number of decades but that doesn't necessarily directly translate into uh, what is needed to um, be involved in, in a charity. So I started with an open mind. Inevitably, one uses one's previous experience to address issues and challenges. So I can't say that it played no part in it. But I was keen to go into things with an open mind and say, well, OK, how, how are we going to address the core of this particular issue? And the way you do things in business isn't always the same as the way you would do them in wider society. I think that's really interesting because I think it's often a, a criticism you sometimes hear of philanthropists that even well, very well-meaning, they assume that, that the skills that you've learned in business translate directly across. And I think to hear you say that actually you need to recognise that there are 
different skills and expertise required is is really interesting. I guess one one thing that I've seen you speak about or uh, Reggie speak about before that is relevant in terms of your business life is a lot of your work involved contracting with and working with the public sector. And so you've always been very clear that collaboration between sectors is very important. Is is that something that from the outset you were keen to kind of factor into your philanthropy as well? Uh, Absolutely. That is the approach we took uh, at Accord. And whilst it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision at the start to say, well, we're going to um, work in partnership with the public sector and local authorities in addressing this issue, probably because we needed to start by understanding what the issues were. But it very quickly became obvious that the only way it was going to work properly is if we said, you know, we're not trying to compete with the public sector we're not, not trying to do things that are alien to that, that sector either. What we're looking to do is find ways that we could mesh in and work together to address this issue because it's, it's bigger than one organisation or one sector. Um, it needs that sort of collaboration. And uh, public authorities do a brilliant job, I think. They're, they're often slated or criticised but in very difficult circumstances, they really do work hard at trying to achieve the right results. But there are times also when private philanthropy can come in and say, well, look, we've got this idea and it's not tested. Uh, it may seem outlandish, but we believe in it. We think we're going to, we want to invest in it. We're not asking the public sector to pay for it out of, out of the public purse. But if it works, or if it looks like it'll work, will you work with us on it? And I think if you approach it in that way, we got a lot of people in the public sector who are very interested in exploring new ideas with us. I, th- I think that's really interesting. It goes to a sort of fundamental question about the role of philanthropy or the sort of proper role of, of philanthropy in relation to, to sort of state services and welfare. Because I think too often it's seen as just an additional source of money and, and somewhere that you can go to for funding when when public funding is tight. But I think, as you say, actually, is there something unique about philanthropy? And to me, it often seems as though that ability to take risks that aren't available to the to the public sector for various reasons is one of those and to sort of innovate and test things like early interventions. Um, in terms of the specific work that you did at, at For Baby's Sake Trust, and you've talked a bit about what motivated you to, to start that in the first place, and, and you started talking to experts, what what was it that determined the specific approach that, that you take? And maybe you could say a bit about what that approach is, because it is kind of quite unusual, I think, in, in the field, and in some ways counterintuitive, I would say. Yes, yes. Um, what, what, as we were looking at it, uh, what occurred to us is that whilst the, the symptoms of the pro- problem were constantly being treated um, or attempted to be, it, it was obvious that uh, this is a growing problem and the, with the best will in the world, you can never raise enough money uh, to address it fully once it goes beyond a certain point. You know, when you're talking domestic abuse, the effect it has on the lives of both the perpetrator and the victim, or to some extent, sometimes it's a mixture of both because um, domestic abuse can be bi-directional at at times. And the effect, long-term effect it will have on the baby are so enormous. And I, I use that word advisedly. I'm not 
it's not hyperbole, it's actually the truth, that it's a a never-growing problem. There is a limit to which the public sector can fund treating the symptoms. There is a limit to how many, uh, how the criminal justice system can cope with the number of cases, the increasing number of cases. There's a limit to how social services, how many uh, cases social services can deal with effectively. Um, Recruiting that number of people and training them to the level that is required is an almighty task. So it became obvious that we, we needed to address the issue at its root. Why is it growing? Why is that happening? And it became obvious that um, through the generations, what we were doing was just allowing a problem to escalate. So the, the, the sad fact is that a baby that is being abused or a young child that is being abused has a, a more has an increased risk of being either someone who uses abuse or someone who accepts or receives abuse. And that is um, a, a really sad life sentence that we're, that, uh, we're, we're um, sentencing people with. Um, and it needs to be broken. That cycle needed to be broken. How do you break it? Um, you try and help baby Peter, had he survived and had he been someone who used abuse, you would try to help him understand what happened to him as a baby, be able to come to terms with it and to be able to address it in such a way that he doesn't always need to resort to the sort of violence that was inflicted on him. That's the only way you will break that cycle. And so we say, let's start right at the beginning, six months before birth. Let's work with the parents. Let's look at the problems that they faced when they were growing up, up, the traumas that they're still holding within them and help them to deal with it. And to a large degree, that can be done. You're never going to say, well, you know, a person, you're going to wipe that off completely from that person's memory, but you can help them, help give them tools, enough tools to be able to deal with it and have a reasonably normal life. And that will give their baby a much stronger chance of growing up in a way that they're not inflicted with the same problems. So it was really a a need to get to the, the core of this issue and how do we just stop it happening again and again yeah absolutely and it, it strikes me it's a very you know domestic uh, violence and domestic abuse is a, a obviously a very sensitive and difficult area and the ability to come in and work in a way that is sort of non-judgmental and person-centered uh, seems to be hugely valuable do you think that um an organization that is that is structured as a charity or a philanthropic enterprise is is in a better position than perhaps a state entity there sometimes because people might be more willing to to trust them or feel as though that, that they're kind of able to to open up to that process that they might not do with a with a statutory body well i think a philanthropic organization can do an awful lot in this space not on their own i think it should always be hand in hand with uh, the public sector and social services. That, that really is very important. The overlap with uh, s- uh, social care, the overlap 
with the, the criminal justice system, all of those things need to be handled properly. Nevertheless, uh, we as a private philanthropic organization can, can sometimes take a slightly different approach. We can, for instance, our program lasts two to two and a half years. It's a very long time, but it's the only way you're going to get to the bottom of the issues that those people face. And so, you know, we have that sort of flexibility, but also the point you made about people trusting us. It's not necessarily because we're intrinsically different uh, to what, what the public sector would want to do. It's just that they're very often seen as officialdom. And many of the people we work with uh, are scared of officialdom and worried about what will happen, worried that they might uh, have their children taken away. And so there's probably a, a greater willingness to work with us at the beginning. And then as long as we don't abuse that trust, as long as they can see that what we're doing is going to help them overcome some of their problems, they, they start to actually engage really, really well. And we found that with some of the men. Uh, and let's, if we just sort of for a moment uh, make the assumption that most perpetrators are men, um, and I, I would question that. But nevertheless, let's work with that assumption. You know, they, they at first are very concerned, worried about joining a programme such as ours. It's when they start to see the benefit, when, when we try and get to the bottom of the issues that are really troubling them, then they see that this is something that's worth working with and worth sticking with. And I'll give you one example, if I may. There was, um, I won't mention uh, the name of the person or whatever, but um, there was a family that we were looking to work with, a, a couple, that is, a pregnancy stage, um, and uh, the, the, the father-to-be came uh, and met with one of our practitioners. And at first he presented as being really very angry, someone who had a temper who he really couldn't necessarily control. And there were some concerns in the team. Are we really going to be able to help uh, this family? But then they discussed it and just decided, well, if we don't, then what's going, to, what's going to improve things for them? So they started on the programme, wind the clock forward two years, and it was the last session that this uh, man had with his practitioner. And he'd worked hard and done some good work. And on his way out, he put a thank you card on the table and said to our practitioner, you know, you're the first person ever to ask me what happened to you. And that changed his life. He said, without you, I would be in prison now and I wouldn't have access to my baby. Yeah, and it's, I mean, certainly in terms of seeing or kind of being aware of the impact of the work I think at that individual level that kind of thing is hugely powerful I'm sure for the people working uh, with them as well yeah. um, you, you mentioned there that obviously in, in terms of the the intervention itself it's it's quite long term in comparison to a lot of what statutory services are often in a position to provide being two years yeah. but even beyond that I guess you've, you've already sort of mentioned part of the the rationale behind the approach is that you are 
doing an early intervention in something that otherwise will result in much longer term um, problems and even sort of generational issues. Do you think as a philanthropically funded uh, vehicle, you're in a better position to do that? Because it, it often strikes me one of the, the challenges for the public sector is they are kind of tied to short term spending cycles and political cycles. So even if they want to take that long term view, it's quite difficult. Do you feel as though you have that as an advantage? Um, yes, we, we have. Um, the disadvantage is that this is such a big problem in society. And when you think that the, most people, the, the, the research shows that 20% of children are affected uh, by domestic abuse in this way. It's a huge problem in terms of numbers. Uh, philanthropy couldn't hope to raise the sort of money that is needed to address this problem nationwide and long term. It needs to be a combination of um, philanthropic funds and public sector work. What, what we want to do is to try and create a framework that the, the local authorities can say, well, look, we can see this works. We can work with it because it, it ties in with our, with our approach. And therefore, they could create uh, a resource uh, or we can help them to create a resource within their local authority that addresses the trauma at an early stage. And that's how we've been um, rolling out the programme and it works really well. And the local authorities that, we, that we're dealing with can absolutely see the benefit uh, of doing it in this way. Absolutely. And I know that the focus on having an evidence base for what you do has been a very important part of the work. And, and from the outset, you've worked with academic institutions, I think Imperial College, um, amongst others, to, yeah. to do some sort of rigorous research around that. I mean, how how important was that for you in, in terms of not only making sure you were on the right track in, in terms of the approach you were taking, but also being able to show others and thereby kind of influence wider practice? Well, it was very important. Just uh, a slight correction. The, the mm -hmm. team uh, was led by um, a King's College London. Oh, team. sorry, of course. I knew it was part of the University of London. And, and yes. um, actually, you're not completely wrong because one of the um, sort of supervisory team uh, for the research uh, was uh, at Imperial College London uh, and another was at McMaster and uh, another one was at Lancashire University. So... Uh, we, you know, the, they brought in um, world experts uh, in this field to oversee the um, the evaluation and the research on it. Uh, it was very important to us. We wanted to, um, we, we had great confidence in the efficacy of the programme, but nevertheless, that needs to be validated. And beyond that, um, not just the validation, but ha having people look over it and suggest suggest ways that we could um, enhance the program and make it work really well was very valuable for us. So all the way through that four-year research and evaluation, we were learning all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of that as well, I guess part of that learning is for your own benefit. And as I say, part of it is to provide an evidence base that can influence others. And I, I know 
that it's a, a, an explicit part of for baby sakes uh, trust's approach to try and have some of that influence at the moment what's the kind of balance between sort of directly providing the interventions that, that are the core of what you do and work to try and use that to to influence the, the public sector more broadly and to influence policy well you're, you're right we 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 do both uh, because the two are intrinsically linked if if we have a program that really works uh, we we can allow that to inform uh, the sort of um, the the aspect of persuading and disseminating that information uh, and vice versa the more we talk to people about it the more we take account of other people's ideas the more we can put into our program to to improve it and I think that's really what we're aiming for in, in the long term, is to have a programme that's established in a number of local authority areas around the country that each can learn from each other and the central coordination uh, can learn from all of them. And I think that that would be a very strong model for, for having a big impact on this really difficult area in society. Um, and just on, on the work of For Baby's Sake Trust, I mean, obviously, we're at the moment still operating in the context of uh, a pandemic. I mean, hopefully towards the, the latter stages of the effects of it, but but we still don't really know that. That's had a huge impact on lots of organisations across all sectors. How has it affected the work of, of the trust and the, the work that you do as a philanthropist? Um, well, at the start of the lockdowns, um, we, we obviously um, met, continued to meet on, on Zoom. And the, the feedback that we were getting from the teams and from our senior people was, well, we can continue to work because we can do it using technology. We can still, it may not be quite as good as face-to-face, um, but nevertheless, the technology is there. And those families need us now more than ever before. Um, so we did that and uh, we, we invested in the processes, we invested in the technology and continued to provide the, the, the programme. And what we found was actually it was working extremely well. So, and in some aspects, even better. Uh, not in all aspects, uh, face-to-face is... Uh, really important, but equally there are times when it is easier to, for people to um, put their innermost thoughts out to the other person if they're not there face to face and feel that they're being judged. And we do everything we can not to judge people because that that's not the way to address those issues. So it, it worked extremely well. And then the thought came to us, hold on a second, if we can do that, why not offer it to people who aren't in any of our local areas? So issue a telephone number and uh, means of contact and then start working with people in other parts of the country. So that was the birth of For Baby's Sake Connect. And that's been recently launched. We're already working with families, parents-to-be um, and uh, um, soon, soon to be. So, uh, and so far, it's working extremely well, and our practitioners are very positive about it. Um, so, yes, it's uh, it's had that um, unexpected benefit in some ways, if you can call it a benefit, because 
the the whole um, pandemic saga being such a tragedy for people's lives. But if if at least we can extract something positive out of it, then it won't all have been for nothing. No, absolutely, and I you know it's very inspiring. You know, certainly the work I've done to have heard the stories of lots of charities who similarly have made a virtue out of necessity. And one thing I think in having to move into doing things digitally that they have realized is that actually in some cases that means that you can provide those services to a to a broader pool of people and that's something maybe organizations are going to try and hang on to after the the pandemic is hopefully over and we're able to do things in person again so you know it's a a small uh, silver lining as you say to an an otherwise uh, pretty terrible year i just want to to move on we've touched on some of these issues already but i just kind of want to put them in the in the wider context of of philanthropy because it's very interesting for me to talk to to you as a philanthropist and you've said a bit about the role of you know the work that you do as a philanthropist and the, the value that that brings in being able to uh, you sort of innovate and take risks, but still whilst working alongside um, uh, the public sector. Uh, does you know? Do you think uh, more broadly? What do you see as the the role of philanthropy in society? What's its kind of USP that differentiates it from state or market provision? I mean, there's there's that element of of taking risk, but is there something? Are there other things that you think philanthropy uniquely brings to the party? Yes, there are lots of things. Actually, before I go into that, mm. I, I find um, I sort of uh, cringe a bit um, when I'm described as a philanthropist. <laughs> this was going to be a question, yes, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I don't see that that's what I'm trying to do. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's different for, for different people. Charitable giving for some people is something that gives them deep satisfaction and helps them do something great in society and provides funds for charities to be able to do their work. And it's absolutely necessary and required. Uh, But that's not me. I I, I don't get that same satisfaction out of just purely giving. And the the reason for that is, I, I, I suppose I've always been focused on addressing issues uh, head on. And um, what I want to do is use the money that I would contribute philanthropically in society to actually run things directly. Uh, and that's just a particular characteristics. I imagine some other people will have those same characteristics. Um, you, you want your hands on the steering wheel and you want to see the results of uh, what how that money is applied so for me it's it's the it's the attraction of addressing uh, intractable issues head on that i find attractive and irresistible and even if at times i think oh why am i doing this Um, i sold my business 12 years ago and um, at my age maybe i shouldn't be wrecking my brains on the other on the other hand it's just an irresistible you just can't turn your back on it when you know there are things that we can do to address some of these issues. So that's that's my approach to philanthropy. But thank God for all the other people who approach it in a different way um, and say, no, here's the money. Uh, let's see what, what can be done with it through the charities that already exist. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think there's space for for all of those different approaches. Um, it's, it's interesting that you said, you know, in terms of the, the specific word philanthropist, it's not necessarily one that you're that comfortable with applying to yourself or having applied to you. This is something I hear quite a lot from other uh, people who would be termed as philanthropists by others. What What is it that bothers you about it? Is it that you feel as though it's just not a very well understood word or are there things about the ways in which it is understood that you are uncomfortable with or you don't feel reflect you know you you and your approach well if you, if you look at the etymology of the word mm. we're all philanthropists hope yes <laughs> uh, uh, because you know we all we we all um hopefully are friends to people in society to other people in society so uh, that that should be taken as a given so um being being labelled as someone who does that actually starts to make me feel slightly uneasy because so many people do that as well, but in different ways. They may not be in a position to lay down a chunk of money or chunks of money to address issues, but they give of their own time. They they uh, contribute to things uh, in a big way or in a small way. So you know they they all deserve that as well. Um, so that I suppose that's partly what um, makes me slightly cringe when when I'm described as that. But there's no, I don't know if there's any other word that adequately describes it. Uh, but if, if there is, then I'd be keen to use that instead. I think, unfortunately, from having sat in many meetings where people try to think <laughs> of an alternative, I don't think anyone's come up with one yet. No. But one one thing, I guess, about the, the words that perhaps bothers some donors or concerns them is that along with being described as philanthropist comes a certain level of scrutiny, which is probably right and proper. But but even beyond that, I think certainly at the moment, there's a there's a sense in which there are critiques and criticisms of philanthropy, many of them sort of stemming from debates going on in the US, but they've, they've started to filter over here. And I think maybe there's a concern that by being labelled as a philanthropist or putting your head above the parapet, you're you're going to be shot down. Do you do you have any of those sort of concerns that in publicly identifying as a philanthropist, you're opening yourself up for criticism? No, no, I don't. I, I think um, when whatever you do, um, if if you put your head above the parapet, then there are going to be people who will want to work with you and will approach it in the right way. And there will be others who criticise. Uh, that's just life. And the idea of not doing it uh, because you might be criticised, uh, I think, is quite a weak excuse for doing nothing. Um, so I think I think we we just have to accept it. That's part of life. Uh, and carry on doing. If if we're confident, if each person is confident that what they're doing is right, that they are contributing in some way, big or small, then they shouldn't worry about the criticism. You know, maybe that's a badge of honour. Yeah, I, think, I suppose there's an element to an extent to which a, a thick skin is required for for lots of different uh, things in life and this is philanthropy is probably one of those yeah. another thing i occasionally fear actually uh, hear about something that sort of makes people concerned about engaging with philanthropy in a big way or stops them from from starting in the first place is a, a sort of fear of failure in some sense i think particularly for people who've been successful in in other aspects of their life actually when it comes to particularly the sort of philanthropy that addresses quite intractable intractable problems 
a concern that actually those are very difficult problems and that if you go into philanthropy to try and address them there is a danger that what you do won't work do you you know have you ever found yourself concerned that that you will suffer some sort of you know failure in the work you're doing how do you how do you kind of understand that that failure or do you see it as a different thing to failure in the commercial world i i there, there is always the risk of failure and um but that exists in the commercial world in, in mm. Um, the public sector in in any walk of life um, and partly it's what drives you to work at things and to make do as much as you can to make it succeed um, so you can't let that stop you uh, I think it's a positive force uh, that could be used that should be used by people to say well uh, I'm damned if I'm going to fail I'm going to do everything I can to, to make it work and then work with as many people as possible. I, I don't believe that, um, you know, sort of going off on a lone expedition in philanthropy is um, certainly it's not my preferred way. You have to work with people. You have to understand what is happening. And actually, once you do that, once you put in the work and once you bring in talented people to help you, um, then your chances of failure are, are reduced. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting you, you talk there about working with others and collaboration. I know you, you spoke about, you know, immediately kind of seeking out experts in the field when you decided to, to focus on domestic violence as an issue and that shaped the approach you, you take. More broadly, have you at any points kind of sought advice on philanthropy in, in general? I mean, there's obviously a whole kind of industry of philanthropy advice out there telling people you know the practicalities of how to give but also helping them understand what they might want to do with their philanthropy or were you kind of clear in your own mind from the outset what it was that you wanted to do i, I think all of the all of those support networks are really useful and important by the way um it, it isn't the route i took but nevertheless they are very very useful for people to be able to have a sounding board uh, on what they can do to um address issues in society. In my case, it was it started with curiosity. How do we address this? And I didn't even know that there was a solution, let alone that uh, we would find one. But we just worked at it, and uh, it, it eventually uh, came about. Um, so I, 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 it's hard to say that, uh, you know, I didn't sort of one day wake up and say, right, you know, there's this, uh, I've invented the light bulb or something. It, it, it was a process of gradually understanding some of the problems and um, getting a feel for it as well. I remember right at the beginning, I, I met uh, a marvellous woman. Uh, actually, I think she operates or operated at that time, it was 12 years ago, in, in Shrewsbury. Uh, and she was running a, a home for children who'd been fostered multiple times and it hadn't worked. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she had people who'd been fostered 30, 40, 50 times. Um, but eventually she got results. But the later she started with them, uh, the more work it needed to undo some of the harm. And she said something to me at the beginning and it stuck in my mind. She said, imagine you are a baby born into one of those relationships. From day zero, you don't know anything about this world. You don't know that there are 
flowers, you don't know that there are nice smells, you don't know that there is nice food, you don't know that there is love even. Um, all you feel is pain and hurt and deprivation. As a baby from time, from, from zero, from birth, uh, she said, what do you think your brain is going to tell you about this world? And how will you grow up? What view will you take about this world? And it, it sort of, it shone a spotlight on what we're doing to these kids and how on earth could we even expect many of them to grow up and form relationships and uh, get a good education or even a half decent education. It doesn't matter, not everybody has to be a professor, but keep down a job and enjoy life and form uh, a life partnership if they have that sort of start. And it really brought it home to me, what she said. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think speaking to people who have that kind of direct experience of some of those intractable problems is yeah, hu- usually hugely uh, powerful and affecting. Um, I'm aware I'm in danger of taking up uh, far too much of your time, Celia. So I just wanted to ask um, a, a final couple of questions um, on, on philanthropy. I mean, we talked there about, you know, sort of view of, uh, the, the role of philanthropy in society and kind of, you know, whether or not philanthropy is even a very helpful word. In terms of the, the sort of broader culture of, of philanthropy in the UK, I mean, there's lots of ongoing efforts to try and get more giving and better giving in the UK. Do you think, I mean, do you see yourself as having any role in that as a philanthropist and as a wealthy person who has decided to go down that route in talking about your philanthropy and trying to influence others to get involved in philanthropy? Or do you feel as though, it's it's an entirely private matter and you kind of it's up to each person to decide for themselves just before i address i think it's really important it sounds as though i've done it all and actually um, that's not the case it's not the truth Um, we've got a senior leadership team um, of really talented people and then beyond them the staff the the practitioners who work their socks off who care so much about what they're doing. Every time I have a a meeting, sadly now it's on Zoom, but before I used to go and visit them uh, in their own localities. And it inspires me every time. It reminds me why we're doing what we're doing. So, you know, I I really do need to say uh, uh, how brilliant the senior leadership team is and our group of trustees who just never failed to come up with thoughts and keep us on the right track. Um, So without that senior leadership team, I couldn't operate. My only role is to give a bit of guidance, be a sounding board and give give that talented team my support. Uh, So I wanted wanted to bring that in. You asked me about um, how do we make giving better and what role would I have in that and or is it a purely private thing that I just want to do my own philanthropy and and nothing else I think there is always a role and it's important to be available to speak to other people to answer their thoughts their questions give them a bit of confidence that um, philanthropy is really important that supporting charities is incredibly important Whichever, whichever route they take. So I, I think it's there. I think where I can help 
uh, here and there. I will do that in the sort of more general arena, but always remembering that the job we have at For Baby's Sake is enormous. It, it will take forever to reach the people, all the people that we need to reach. And even then, I don't think we will have been able to reach all of them. But by reaching a proportion, we start to reduce the problem that exists in society. Otherwise, it will grow and grow to the point where it's unsustainable. And, um, and then, you know, how will, how will the police, how will the courts, how will social services ever cope with the increasing numbers? So I think it's, it's um, important that we just stick to our knitting in many ways. And periodically, we go out to the wider world and we, we're there as a sounding board. We're there to help in whatever way we can for people to frame the thoughts about philanthropy. Yeah, I think I mean, it's really interesting to hear. And I think for those who are tentatively thinking of getting involved in philanthropy, having the ability to speak to to other people uh you know like them or who might have had a similar experience and to get as you say that sort of reassurance and confidence is often a hugely important step in uh in enabling them to to go much further so i think that's really um interesting to hear um listen it's been a it's a pleasure uh, having the chance to to talk to you celia it's fascinating to hear about the the work that you've been doing and i certainly wish you all the best with it um before i let you go is there any sort of final thoughts you want to leave people with or anything you'd like to to point people to that that you have coming up in in your work um well uh, hopefully we will um I, I it would be great if people uh, went onto the website because there are lots of resources there i think every one of us watching some of the videos that have been made and some of them are animated videos will be touched by them and we'll probably be able to think of something in our backgrounds that could benefit from us um, you know d- trying to come to terms with uh, the things that might have happened in the past um, so I think that's the that's the message if we can if we can all address some of the issues that we face and some have much bigger issues that they need to face than others. Nevertheless, everybody can benefit. We need to reduce the harm in society. When when people get angry, understandably, about all the things that are wrong in society, whether it's uh, to do with uh, violence, gender issues, race, everything else, it's understandable that people get angry about it. But that doesn't actually address the problem. What addresses the problem is when we say, right, okay, the anger that I feel says that there's a big issue here, but how do we go about addressing it in a practical way? Yeah, and, and a thought, I think, you know, a great one to, to leave it on, um, and one that applies, as you say, uh, not just to the work you're doing around uh, domestic violence and, and children, but much more broadly. Um, it's been a pleasure, Stelio. Um, I wish you all the best with the, with the work you're doing, and maybe at some point uh, in the future we could get you back on the podcast to see how things have developed. Thank you, Rodri. I really enjoyed uh, talking about it. Thank you. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Stelio for coming on the podcast. It was great to have the chance to talk to him. I will put links as ever in the show notes to some of the things that we discussed and where you can find more information on them. If you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis 
or at Philiteracy uh, if you want stuff that's more about the history and kind of uh, literary and theoretical background of philanthropy. If you've got ideas for people we could talk to on the podcast, topics we could cover, uh, do drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, uh, just like, subscribe, uh, tell all your friends about the podcast, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever else you pick up the show, and we'll see you next time. Bye! (laughs) 